0: Bible is James chapter 4. James 4 and we continue on in our journey here along with Jesus' half brother and the church in Jerusalem. Probably one of those things that we always desire but sometimes don't really happen with every passage, usually because of us, but tonight one of those times where you can say, You're going to be able to pack this one up and take it home with you. How to draw near to God. Anybody in here like to get a little closer to Jesus? Eh, I would. Even as a pastor, I can tell you that's one of my great heart's desires is to draw closer to Jesus. It's the essential part, really, of that sanctification process. And this particular passage, as we look at verses 6 through 12, is probably one of the most concise ways that we can actually improve our relationship with the Lord day by day. Uh, If you want to know where a passage is that you can turn to, and I'll give you seven very specific things tonight that you can do on how to draw near to God. And so let's pray. We'll pick up in verse 6 down through verse 12, just seven verses, but seven very powerful verses And from those seven verses, seven things that we can do to draw near to God. Father, thank you for your word and its power to change us, to mold us and shape us. And Lord, tonight we have admitted that we want to draw near to you, get closer to you, be more like you. And so we pray that your word would be alive to us, that we would be strengthened to receive it. And once we receive it, that we would do something with it. And so, God, we just give you tonight, and pray that you would use this time for your glory and for your purposes alone, in Jesus' name, Amen. Remember the context of our last time in here in the Book of James, in the first six verses, um, we really find this subject. So, the first five plus first six tonight, as we have. Really seen that if you desire to get close to God, that the starting place is you can't have another God. As we saw last time, there can't be spiritual adultery in our lives, there can't be another ruling Lord. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, we have to mean Jesus is Lord, and there's only room for one Lord. In our life at any one time. And it is that context that draws us, in essence, from verse 5, from that jealous God that looks at our lives and says, Well, Jeff, you kind of have another Lord. And it's not me that draws us from verse 5 to this beautiful promise of verse 6 and what follows beyond it down to verse 12. But he gives More grace. Anybody thankful for the ever abounding beautiful Romans 5 where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Amen. He gives more grace to the person who desires God's grace. God gives more grace. Now make sure that you don't misunderstand what this is saying. It isn't that we can go on sinning so that grace can more abound. It means to the person that recognizes there's only room for one Lord, to the person who desires for Jesus to be Lord of their life, for the one that's willing to do the necessary work to say, God, I want you first. To that person, there is more grace. And that grace abounds. It is increasing grace. It's grace that's all-sufficient. It's grace that will lay waste to those issues in our life that need to change. It is God's abounding grace that's available to the person who really wants to draw near to God. But he gives more grace, and therefore he says, and here it comes, and we'll highlight these seven things. There are really probably more in here, but seven that we can see for sure And therefore he says, because he wants there to be one Lord and he wants to pour out grace in your life, here's how to make that happen. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And therefore submit to God. There's the positive admonition. You have to submit to God. You can't continue to have another Lord, and you cannot be your own Lord. You have to submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You notice what it says there. It doesn't say that if you try and make peace with the devil, you camp out with the devil, you allow the devil to have a place in your life. It says literally resist, take Action against the devil and his plans, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And He's not making a negative declaration there. He's speaking the truth. As sinners, we need to wash ourselves up. Cleanse your hands. Take the positive steps of doing something about the sin that is still remnant in our life. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's the part that is sometimes difficult because the fact of the matter is we actually sometimes do try and walk a pretty thin line between Christ and Belial, between the devil and Jesus. We almost, it's like, well, if this whole Jesus thing doesn't work out, I'll just go back to where I was when I started. Because you were once, just exactly as Ephesians 1 declares, there in verses 1 through 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive. But sometimes we kind of hang out in the cemetery. Sometimes we kind of walk in the graveyards, kind of like, well, you know, there's only just mostly dead people here mostly dead things in my life. We can't be double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And and it sounds kind of gloomy, but the fact of the matter is sin should bother believers. We should be mourning over the fact that we are not what God wants us to be fully yet. Yet. We still have some issues, we got some junk, we got some garbage, we need to take out the trash. We need to look at our own lives and go, you know what? There's some stuff there that doesn't belong. You know, it's really interesting, I don't know how many of you, you know, if you have boys, you almost assuredly have Legos in your house. But you know, as you, as you, as you grow up, and you, you kind of don't really lose the desire to build things out of Legos. But you can spot the piece that doesn't belong. You know, there's Legos and there's Duplos, and Duplos are the big ones. Legos are the small ones. you can go, oh, that's just not going to work. That's the wrong piece. you got to be able to spot the pieces that don't belong in the construction of your life. And that should bug you. It should cause you grief. You should look at those things and go, man, that doesn't belong in my life. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And this is rapid fire. I I don't know if you've noticed yet, but this is like statement after statement after statement. This is not suggestion after suggestion after suggestion. This is do this, do this, do this, do this, Do this, if you want to draw near to God, do these things. Do not speak evil of one another. You think the church could learn from that one tonight? Brethren, for he who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother and speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law but a judge. For there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? The truth of the matter is, if you're really a believer, the spirit of the living God is in you. The spirit of Christ actually dwells in you and yearns earnestly for you to be like the one who now inhabits your life. That's a truth to the body of Christ that is going to cause both beauty and conflict to come upon you. Why do I say that? Because the very things that identify who we are in Christ also identify who we should not be. Amen? So the same, the same spirit that identifies in you what you should be in Christ also identifies what you should not be in Christ. And so to the extent that you have conflict between those two positions, the Holy Spirit is at work. Jesus actually said to us that I will send the Holy Spirit to you to convict of both sin and of righteousness. In other words, both sides of that equation are identified by the Holy Spirit that's in you. So when you have conflict... That's not because one thing is good and the other thing is good. It's that one thing is good and the other thing is bad. It's not supposed to be in your life. And so you're conflicted by it. That same Holy Spirit is the same Spirit that we saw last time that is in you earnestly going, look, I want you to be a faithful bride. I don't want you to walk in that old life that you were delivered from. I want you to turn the corner and head towards me. I don't want what is produced in your life to be illegitimate fruit. I want it to be legitimate fruit of righteousness. And see, a lot of Christians try and walk on top of the fence They're on the edge of the canyon. They're attempting to see exactly how close they can get to the world. And so they try and divide very carefully between things that are really not of the Lord and things that are of the Lord. And they hang on to a lot of things that frankly are not of God. They try and toe that line. I was listening to a, a, a very, very intelligent doctor just a couple of hours ago that was giving, given all the reasonings, a Christian doctor, as to why no believer, no believer should smoke pot. And you know, that shouldn't be controversial. But it is. The church is conflicted. Some, some people, well, you know, it, it's an herb. You know, God caused that plant to grow. I've gotten very lengthy emails, but it makes you dumb as a post. It, it causes you to lack drive. It messes with your sense of right and wrong. It causes you to, there's a reason we call it Stoned. It's because your brain becomes a rock. And people are going, well, you know, but that's you dancing between something that, okay, maybe it's not totally some heinous sin for you, but is it making you more like Jesus? Is it drawing you close to the Lord? And the answer is emphatically, no, it is not drawing you closer to Jesus. And so you can dance on that line. You can do the same thing with alcohol. You can do the same thing with your dating relationship. You can see how close you can get to sin and hopefully not go over the line or you can resist the devil and he will flee. Amen? If you play with it, there's a real good chance you're going to get burned by it. You see, our self-centeredness causes us to try and find out where that line is. This passage helps us know how to get away from that position and move to full control by Jesus. You see, it boils down to who's in control. It boils down to who's in control. And if you are in control, you see, we're in a world right now that is just screaming this insanity of, I want control. It's my body. It's my brain. It's my life. And all of those things, while in a sense of who you are as a person, is true as a Christian, it is not true. Your life is not your own any longer. It belongs to Christ. He paid for it with his blood, and so he's supposed to be in control. So for the church, for believers, I'm not talking about someone who does not know the Lord, but for the person who claims the grace of God, Jesus Christ is Lord if he's Savior. So if you declare that you are saved, then he is also your Lord. And if he is not Lord, then there's a pretty good chance that there's a little distance between you and the saving grace of God as well. Why do I say that? Because that is the problem that people face. They want to have Jesus as their savior. They want to be certain they're going to heaven, but they do not want the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we are to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm preaching a little bit tonight because I'm really kind of tired of the devil winning in a lot of Christians' lives. You see, if we don't acknowledge that we have one Lord, then maybe we're trying to have two. And part of the time, Satan is Lord or part of the time your bank book is your Lord, or part of the time your sexuality is your Lord, or part of the time your drinking is the Lord, or part of the time your drugs are the Lord, or part of the time your money and the things it can purchase are your Lord. And when there is another Lord, God gets jealous. He says, Mm-mm, that's not working for me. I paid for your life. It's mine. Your body is not yours. It actually belongs to him. So anytime a Christian says, it's my body, I can do with it as I please, they're actually not understanding that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your body, that your temple, it belongs to him. When someone says, well, I can do whatever I want in my leisure time, you're not understanding the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the lord of your life when you're on vacation. That's not when you get to go do whatever you want to do and let your hair down. You're supposed to still be saved when you go on vacation, okay? So Jesus should be lord, doesn't mean you can't have fun. It means that you have fun in the context of you have fun as a Christian, as a believer, as someone whose life is constantly being observed by the world to see whether what you declare with your mouth is actually visible in your life. You see, if you want to draw near to the Lord, you need to be going his direction. He's coming towards you, but are you going towards him? You see, he can be running towards you, coming towards you, but you can be going the other way, and that distance may not close. You see, one of the laws of physics is if two things are set in motion at the same point in time, and they're traveling the same speed, then they will never close the distance. One has to be going faster than the other to close the distance, They're both being acted on by the same forces. The problem is the world is trying to make you run away from the Lord. And so that speed can accelerate as you give in to those things in your life that shouldn't be there. Who's in control? God's not going to let you be satisfied with anything other than him. And so when you get off on those patterns of behavior that don't belong in the life of a child of God, you can count on being miserable. That's not because you're not fulfilled in that relationship. That's because God's not letting you be satisfied with another Lord. It's not because that alcohol no longer does what it used to do. It's because Jesus wants to be Lord. And it's true for everything in your life. Jesus is Lord of all, or perhaps he's not Lord at all. We've got to be careful. There's no such thing as cheap grace. It's free, absolutely. But because it's free, it's also the most valuable thing in your life. No individual will be able to call their own shots, and live and die in that arrogance that, well, Jesus doesn't get this. If you try and do that, God's going to prove you wrong. You're going to find out that that's not very satisfying. And in fact, the spirit that dwells in you, as we've already seen, dwells earnestly desiring for you to have just one Lord. Sometimes I I, I talk to Christians that, you know, they'll go, wow, you know, I just, don't. I do all this other stuff and I, it's like that. I give all that to Jesus. Why won't God just leave me alone with this one thing? (laughs) And and I just look at him and go, because Jesus is Lord. He doesn't want competition. He's not okay with you bringing in a part time, in essence, other God. You see, God promised great grace for our weaknesses. Notice it says greater grace or more grace or abundant grace. That's that Romans chapter five, verse 20, abounding grace. Grace that is greater actually than all of our sin. But that grace comes to the person who wants grace. It doesn't come to the person who doesn't want grace. How do we show God that we want grace? Well, that is coming. That's the context of what we're going to really dig into tonight. Notice that God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble, to the bent knee, to the person who recognizes that Jesus is Lord. There is more grace than all of your sin. Make no mistake about it. But that grace comes to you when you acknowledge the sin. The grace does not come to you when you stand there with your arms crossed over your chest, defiantly poking God. It's like, I don't want to do what you ask. When you do that, there is no grace for arrogance. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you tell God, I'm not doing what you've asked, you're also saying, Please judge me. You're not asking for grace. You're asking for judgment. You're asking for a spanking. (laughs) You're asking, you're defying God to do something about that which he cares most about, which is you. Because he loves you so much, he is also going to chasten you. (laughs) Sometimes we forget those. We don't like those verses. The Lord chastens those whom he loves And if he does not chasten you, he does not love you. You see, sometimes we just want the good stuff that we want. We're like little kids. It's like when you leave. There's a reason those racks of candy are there at the checkout at Walmart. You ever notice that? You ever notice there's no broccoli there? There's no carrots. There's no salads. You ever notice the magazines that are there? It's not all about kids, is it? It's like, oh, I didn't know she slept with him. He slept with her. And before you know it, you're taking this stuff in, you're trying to check out at Walmart. You have to resist the devil. You can't go, wow, wonder how that story ends. Am I helping you tonight? You see, resistance is active. It's not passive. Resistance is not giving in, not only giving in a little bit. Resistance is re- resisting. That's who gets great grace. That grace can and does have the power to save you it has the power to redeem you it has the power to purify you it has the power to sanctify you it's more than sufficient for what you need but you have to do what's necessary to receive it your saving grace is a free gift your sanctifying grace is you telling god you want it your saving grace is a free gift it comes because you said yes to jesus But sanctifying grace, that abounding grace, that abundant grace, while it is also free, you have distributed according to your desire for it. Make sure that you understand that. You're not going to get God's grace when you're defiant. You're not going to get God's grace when you're disobedient. You're not going to get God's grace when you thumb your nose at God. You're going to get Judgment. You're going to get a spanking. You're going to get those things that you would give to your own children if they continue to defy you. So understand that your saving grace comes to you as a free gift, but you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's a balance between these things. You're not saved by works, but you are definitely sanctified as you grow in Christ. And you won't grow in Christ when you're becoming like the world. You become like Christ when you become like Christ. God's resources are never at an end, He's not going to run out of patience. He's not going to look at you and go, well, that's it. You can see that in the life of Peter. But God's divine provision in our life requires a human response. That's why sometimes Christians that they're saved. They're going to make it in. They're going to be that group that gets in by the skin of their teeth through the fires of Hades are going to send them. But they're going to have no victory in their life. They're not going to be used for anything that's of any measurable account for the Lord. If you want to draw close to the Lord, you've got to give up that which is sinful and you've got to lay hold of that which is saintly. We used to be an enemy of God, we used to be slaves of sin. But now I am a loyal subject of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And my life should say that. My words should say that. My choices should say that. You see, I have to choose whether I want to be a friend of God or a friend of the world. You have to be humble. You have to say, look, I don't do such a great job of running my own life. Lord, would you run it for me? The evidences of drawing near are found there in verses 7 to 12. And there are seven of them. But to set this up, the key in all of this is humility. The key in all of this is humility. That means that we recognize that we are subjects of the king. To be truly humble means to take your place in rank and order. And that means he is the boss and you are not. I am not. It's an imperative command if you want to look at it that way. The issuance of grace for salvation is a free gift. It comes by simply asking. But grace in the moment for your sanctification is directly centered on your obedience. So if you want unmerited favor in your life beyond just the saving grace of God, it requires that you humbly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't miss what I'm... Salvation is a free gift. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. But once you're saved... All of the benefit and blessing of being a child of God comes from recognizing that I don't want what I used to be. I'm willing to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. I'm willing to humbly submit to that lordship. It's like, God, I used to be a drunkard. God, I used to be promiscuous. God, I used to lie constantly. God, just go through the list of things that you used to be, which is why Paul's list begin with or end with most of the time, and such were some of you. That's what you used to be. You should be terrible, literally awful at sinning. And furthermore, not only should you be terrible at it, you should hate it. And not only that... When you find it, you should be appalled by it. No Christian should be comfortable in their sin. No Christian should make nice with their sin. No Christian should be okay with, well, I'm 74% like Jesus, and 26% I'm carnal, fleshly, and pathetic. No, it's all Jesus. That's the goal. That's that process of sanctification in a nutshell. It's me saying no to who I used to be, to my flesh, and saying yes in every area of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now let me just tell you, that's a tall order. It's a task. It's not easy, and it certainly doesn't happen overnight. But we have help, praise God. Because God wants us to be like that, so he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us get there. Which gives us the way to identify the problem and to fix the problems. So before you run, it's like, man, I'm hopelessly lost. No, you're not. You need to be hopelessly devoted to Jesus. And to the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit speaks, you go, yes, Lord, your servant hears Here am I, send me. Cause me to do what you want me to do. Because my flesh is going, I, I was on the other team before and I still remember what it was like. You see, the true evidence... All of these commands that are going to follow, and these are all imperative, and they're coming one right after another. I'm just going to identify seven. You could probably pull as many as ten out of this passage if you wanted to, but let's focus on what I think are the main seven. And I only say I because these are the things that are most important to the average believer what are those seven things? What are the seven evidences that we find here between verse seven and verse 12? The first one is submission to the will, the ways, the word, and the work of God. That is an evidence of submission, of bended knee, of you following rank and order. If you're here and you have ever been in the military, you know what I'm about to say is true. We have exactly one commander-in-chief at any given point in time. That is the President of the United States. One of the reasons that the President and the Vice President in a time of crisis are not ever found together... You don't put them on the same plane. They fly in different planes. They don't go to the same bunker. They're in different bunkers because there always has to be one person should it become necessary for us to use our nuclear arsenal. There is a briefcase with launch codes to the ballistic missiles that reside both on land in hardened silos and ballistic missile submarines. There's only one person. There's one commander-in-chief. What the president says is literally an order that stands for the entirety of the U.S. military. And in the very same way, there is only one Lord of your life. That is the Lord Jesus. So you can't get a contradictory order from anyone. You have to hit your place in rank and file. So if you were a four-star general or a three-star, you're going to start moving down that rank and you're going to make it down to colonels and majors and captains and ultimately lieutenants and sergeants, and finally all the way down to enlisted personnel. We are enlisted personnel in the Lord's army. We have taken up a position on the front lines And the commander-in-chief wants to govern how we fight spiritual warfare. And so he is going to give us orders, and those orders are not negotiable. So when God speaks to us through his word, it's not suggestions. In humility, I have to submit myself to those orders. That is his will. That is his way. Those are his words or the word and the work that comes from that, which is the things that God would have us do in any given situation. The orders come down from command and we're obligated to do them. Submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the first point. You have to do that. You've got to start there. If you will not do the first thing, The rest of them are impossible. Each one of these builds on the other. You then will have a disdain, a dislike, a distancing from the devil. Will be an evidence of that submission, that true humility. I have said yes, I have bent my knee. When I use the word humility, what I'm really saying is submit yourself unto God. You have to humble yourself before the Lord. You are Lord. In the Middle Ages, that literally meant getting down on your knees before a king, any type of potentate or ruler. It was a sign of subjection. You literally got on your knees when the king or his emissary, the prince or princess came by, you bent your knee. Why? Why? Because you never wanted to stand above the ruler. You were always in a position that was lower than the ruler. It was a physical sign of what was going on with your life. You can walk over me if necessary. I am not higher than you, you're the, the authority. And in the very same way, the second point you have to distance yourself from other authorities, in this case, the devil. That means you have to not like what the devil's doing. You see, a lot of Christians, it's like, well, I kind of like what the devil's doing there. You know, that that pleases my flesh. That's part of my old nature. You have to distance yourself. If you want what God wants, if you have truly humbled yourself, then you're saying no to the devil. You're saying no to the world's offer of the things that would identify his desires for your life. God's words imparted grace, but you also have an indwelling spirit that's now interceding and giving you the power to actively resist what the devil wants to do. You ever noticed in your life how when something comes up and it's kind of marginally, it's like you don't know, and all of a sudden that goes on in your head instantaneously, This is not what I should do. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. That's the Holy Spirit going, "Mm -mm, Nah, that's not what you want to do. That is your cue to go the other direction, to resist. A third thing, you have to want, and this is in essence of the opposite of the second thing. You have to hunger for holiness in your heart. The devil's trying to get you to, Hang on to these things that will destroy you. And God's saying, here's what you really should be, and here's what you should really do. Holiness and unholiness are the opposite. They're not kind of sort of the same thing worked over. They're literally opposites. You have to literally hate what the devil wants you to do, and you have to love what God wants you to do. If you want to draw near, get as close as you can to the Lord, then that third thing is you're going to hunger for holiness in your heart. It's just going to be a natural thing. And by the way, these were all things that the temple, and the tabernacle, if you've been with us in our study in Hebrews, this is what the priest showed everyone. They were to hunger after holiness. They were to bow their knee. They weren't even allowed to have their, their, their... skin exposed when they walked up the steps of the temple because God was so holy. The reason they wore long cloaks was so that they never showed God the sandals of their feet and they didn't show God the backside. They never turned their back on God. When they left the temple, they would literally face the Ark of the Covenant and back out. That's how much they honored the holiness of God. We're kind of like, oh well, you know the Lord. We have to hunger for holiness. We have to want to be in his presence, in other words. A fourth thing. This is going to cause a change of behavior. We use a singular word, repentance. Repentance in its easiest and most understandable definition. It is to simply turn around and go the other way. It means if you were once going to the right, you're going to go to the left. It means to change your mind, to make up your mind that something is wrong and go the other direction. If you want to draw near to God, this passage reminds us that I have to have a change of behavior. It says, cleanse your hands. Don't be double minded. Those are definitive actions to where you are doing something about the problem. Purify your heart. So that means you're not going to dunk yourself in the junk of the world. You're going to do the opposite, which is clean up your act. Go the opposite direction. You see, repentance actually is kind of the first step in showing God that we mean business. That's why when people go, well, I made, you know, I made a decision to follow Christ, but you know, I just really don't want to give up all these other things. I go, you have, to, you have to actually ask yourself, did you actually decide to follow Christ? It's easy. It's free. All you got to do is invite him into your heart. But if you've invited him into your heart, you're going to actually hate sin. It's going to bug you. And you're not going to want to go the direction of the devil. You're going to want to go the other way. In fact, you're actually going to want to be like Christ. You're not going to want to be like this world. Now, is that going to be instantaneous in all areas of your life? The acknowledgement of it is going to come because the Holy Spirit will do it. It is the actions of it that are the repentance. It's us going, you know what? That needs to change. It's why it's so important that we don't take apart our salvation and say, well, I can just have the Savior part. No, I need to have Jesus as Lord as well. He's both Savior and Lord to the glory of God the Father. That process takes your entire lifetime. That's the process of sanctification. That means Jesus is more Lord today than he was yesterday. So whatever little deficiencies might still have been resident in my life, I am a little more like Christ today. That means I am being sanctified. A fifth thing. Spiritual poverty is an evidence of true humility of that submission. Mourning over the things that shouldn't be in our lives and yet are. That is that Romans 7 picture that Paul said. Those things which I will to do, ah, I don't do them. And the things that I don't want to do, I do some of those that is supposed to cause us to mourn. Not go, well, I got away with it. God didn't, you know, destroy my car or anything today. No, it's supposed to actually cause us to mourn. To go, Lord, I'm so sorry. It should cause us to shake our heads just like, Lord, what was I thinking? Why, God? Change me. You recognize that you're not all the way there. That spiritual poverty means that there needs to be more of his spirit in you, a deeper filling. There is a deficiency and you're asking God to do something about it. Not you're okay with the deficiency. I'm okay with the amount of Jesus in my life. I'm okay, I'll stick with my same same 74, I'm 74% Jesus. No, you're supposed to acknowledge the fact that you're not 100% and it's supposed to bug you. It's like, Lord, would you please fix those areas that still remain in my life? The word that's translated throughout this passage is humble. It's tapeneo. And it literally, in the Greek language, meant bent knee. It's like, Lord, maybe you need to bend my knee there. It's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew's gospel when he said, whoever exalts himself will be tappaneo, humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. In other words, the path up is actually bent knee down. It's less of me and more of him. A sixth thing. And I don't know if there's ever been a time in the history of our nation where I've seen this one so far out of whack in the church. I'm just going to say it like it is. It is sin. Hear me well. It is sin. It is sin to speak evil of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's sin. It is not humility. It is you exalting yourself, believing that you have the right to do that. When a pastor stands in his pulpit and calls out another pastor, that is sin. If you have something to say to him, go to him and say it to his face. When, when you have a problem with somebody, you need to do what Matthew 18 says. You go to your brother, and between you and him or her alone, you resolve that issue so that you might gain your brother back. But it is sin for us to be running around, well, you know, so-and-so. I've watched this rack, over this, this time that we've had this wonderful experience of COVID, I've watched the church cannibalize itself including this one. Well, I'm going to another church. I actually had a guy tell me, well, if you don't have enough guts to stand up and tell people to vote Republican, I'm going to another church. I said, I'm sorry you feel that way. The door's over there. We don't have the right to defame that for which Christ died, which is other people. We need to be very careful with this because it's tearing the church apart. We're way better together than we are separated. We're a more powerful force together than we are separated. These words that are used here to speak against literally means to talk down. It means to dress down. It means to take somebody and belittle them. It means to be judgmental. The fact of the matter is, I'm not responsible for all of the other churches in Los Angeles. I'm responsible for this one. You're not responsible for all the other churches in Los Angeles. You're responsible for your part in this one. And if we take that seriously, then we don't speak evil of our brothers even if we think that maybe they're wrong. We treat them with love and care and concern and compassion. And we address them as fellow members of the body of Christ. Because that will heal those wounds instead of make them deeper. I've watched way too many Christians in the last year and a half and a half speak as though they speak for all Christians in the entire world. And they don't. Matter of fact, I'm not even sure sometimes that they speak for themselves. It's interesting that Jesus actually addressed this in the Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted talking about relationship the person that speaks harshly or slanders someone else is violating God's law his moral law because we were created in God's image so we should care for those created in God's image because they are us and we are them and the seventh and final thing Agreeing with the truth of God's word is evidence of true humility. This is another one of those things that has become so insanely problematic for the church during COVID. You see, one of the beauties of just saying God's word says, and so I shall do, is God's got your back. When the Bible says something we're supposed to be doers of the word and not hearers only, amen? So when there is a truth that's very clear in God's word, you're not ever gonna be wrong by doing it. You're gonna always be right. And so if there are two areas that maybe appear to be conflict, in conflict with one another, maybe it isn't quite as clear in one passage, but the clearer truth is made known in other passages, then the major truth, the biggest truth, the largest truth, the thing that is the big idea, if you want to look at it, is the one that you default to. You know what I can tell you about God? God loves you. And anything that destroys the body of Christ and diminishes the love of God in the church is not from the Lord. If it makes you less loving... If it causes you to be unloving towards other believers then you're on the wrong road. You know why I know that? Because Jesus himself prayed for that specific thing for the body of Christ. I would that you be one as I and my Father are one. Greater love Hath no man than destiny laid down his rights. Lay down his life. First, friend, when you become unloving, you become unlike Jesus. Doesn't mean you can't be strong. Doesn't mean you can't have ideas. Doesn't mean that you can't think about things. Doesn't mean that you can't reason. It means that if it drives you to the point of diminishing the value of some other human being, you're on the wrong road. When we play God, when we make our dictums as though they are more important than the truth of God's word, when we take our leanings and we begin to treat them as truth and we diminish what God's word actually says, we're not being humble towards the word of God. The word of God will always be correct and the words of man always debatable. And whenever they are in disagreement with God's word, God's word wins. So every believer should default to what does the Bible say. And if it speaks specifically, you've already got your marching orders from heaven. We default to the word. If you want to draw close to the Lord, default to the word. Don't default to the U.S. Constitution. Don't default to a court judgment. Don't default to human beings. Default to the word. If the word is specific, that's your orders from heaven. You'll never be wrong. People may hate you for it. You may not be liked by the world but you'll be growing in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior and in his grace. And I'd much rather be in that place than be friends with the world, which the Bible says is to be an enemy with God. We don't want to excuse what we say. We want what we say to match up with God's word. Submit to God's will. Distance yourself from the devil. In other words, resist him. Hunger for holiness. There's some practical application as we wrap this up. Let me be clear. Pride always comes, always has. Solomon knew this. Pride comes before a fall. So if you choose to go against what God's word says, God's not going to stop you from going your own direction but get ready to have a bump in the middle of your forehead. God's good at that. Pride always, always comes before a fall. Another practical application is God gives more grace to the humble as we ask for more grace in our humility. In other words, the closer we get, the more grace we get The nearer we are to the Lord, the more we experience the grace that we need. The the more that I don't resist, the less there is for God to have to break. It's a real simple equation. The more you're like him, the less there is for him to change, and the less painful it will be for you. And finally, every one of us, me, you, all of us, have to decide who is Lord. It's your choice, my choice. For me, I want Jesus to be Lord. I want Him to rule everything. Even the things that probably at times in my life, have said, mm, I'm going to keep that one." I want that bitterness. I'm going to hang on to that for a while. I'm going to lay hold of that hatred. It's like, I'm going to keep that in my back pocket just in case I ever need it. And I'm sure some of you know exactly what I'm saying. You're hanging on to bitterness and anger and hatred and unforgiveness just in case you ever need to beat somebody with it. Jesus is not Lord of that. Because you will have no part of it need to turn it over. Those areas of sin, things that you clung to, things that people would say, you know, that just isn't like Jesus. Jesus isn't Lord in that area. Give it over. Let him have it. Surrender it. Because God loves you enough, he's not going to let you be comfortable with it. It's going to eventually get to the place, it's going it's to be like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I we have we have a couple of, of cacti in our backyard, and and a whole bunch of roses. Did you know that roses have thorns? They do. Did you know those thorns sometimes come off and you don't know it in your skin? they are like, oh, that's not that big a deal. You know, it's just a little because I'm you know I'm a guy. It's like eh, it's another cut. I get those all day, every day. I'll just leave that alone. Then a couple weeks later, you go, man, that still kind of hurts. That's because there's still a thorn in there. And the whole time, it's just getting festered. and It's like you can learn to live with it. You can say, oh, that big bump on my arm, that's nothing. Or you can go, you know what, there's a thorn inside of there. And it's got to come out. It's not going to get better until the thorn's gone. And I think some of us in submission to the Lord don't recognize, you know, I probably need to go into the medicine cabinet and grab the tweezers and this is going to hurt. I'm going to have to open that thing back up. But there's a thorn in there of some kind of thing that isn't okay with God and I've learned to live with it. And God's saying we need to open that back up and get that stuff out of there and pull that thorn out. That's submitting to the Lord. It's gonna hurt for a minute, but it'll be better later. One day we're all gonna stand before the judge. So these seven things, it'd be good now to submit to God, resist the devil, hunger for holiness, repent, turn from sin. Be saddened when you find yourself in it. Don't speak evil of other believers and know and agree with what God's word plainly says and you'll get a whole lot closer to God and you'll experience his goodness amen let's stand and we'll pray together have some pastors up front to pray with you if you need that after service so take these things and use them. They're tools. You can put them in your toolbox and go, hmm, ah, you've turned that over to the Lord. Ah, God's word says that. I really need to do it. Ah, maybe I shouldn't. If I can't say something good, maybe I shouldn't say something at all. Real easy stuff. But we've got to put it into practice. Father, thank you for the simplicity of your word. For these truths, Lord, how we need them in this world today. And let them be true of us. God, let us learn from this passage. And really resist you. Lord, really humble ourselves. Lord, we want that grace. Help us to lean on your word. To deny the devil a footplace in our lives. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, that you don't spank us every time we get into some trouble. Lord, you give us a reminder and maybe it's just a simple nod to go the other direction. Help us to be absolutely in tune with the spirits leading in our lives. Lord, bless us as we give you our best effort. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.